Good afternoon. It's excuse me. It's Monday, the 12th of October 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by David Scott bringing us northern exposure from north of the border. Lockdown. Lockdown is back. Total. And uh, well, Boris is busy today in a Cobra meeting. Apparently, he's going to give a briefing at 6 p.m. this afternoon. He's going to have Rishi Sunak with him and he's going to have uh, Chris Whitty with him, allegedly. Uh, and well, it looks like it's going to be exactly as uh, this document, which we showed you, we brought you about a week and a half ago, uh, has described. So uh, this was the COVID-19 proposed social distancing framework. Uh, which was apparently leaked and it looks like it is, as I say, exactly how it was described here with three so-called alert levels, level one, two and three. Now, I notice that these are not sort of low, medium and high alert. This is uh, medium, high and higher. So there is no low alert, apparently, uh, as we go forward. Uh, but uh, to get from level one to level two, you have to have um, one over 100 cases per 100,000 of the population. Of course, that doesn't mean cases, as we've made this point many times, we'll make it again. This isn't about cases, it's about positive tests, which might not be a case at all. Uh, mainstream press talking about uh, Liverpool and so on, but let's, uh, let's just briefly uh, run through what uh, each level is. So rule of six at level one, which is basically what we're in at the moment. Uh, you're entitled to childcare bubbles, uh, funeral up to 30 attendees, uh, event gatherings 15, because apparently Caroni knows uh, whether it's a funeral or not, and he's not as effective at funerals as he is in other places, uh, and, and so on. And then uh, when we move to level two, it gets a bit uh, stronger, so you're not allowed to meet others outside their household or in private dwellings, uh, including outside space in the home. Uh, in other words, you're not allowed to go and sit in somebody else's garden. Uh, you're not allowed to visit uh, the uh, indoor hospitality, leisure, retail settings. So this is what uh, everybody's expecting, the pubs uh, and so on to be closed once again. Uh, and once you're at level three, well, basically, there's not much you can do anymore, but you are there's certainly no social contact outside the household in any setting, um, but you are allowed to go to church. Um, but of course, most of the churches uh, uh, don't have any ability to, to host uh, large numbers of people under these circumstances. So that is pretty much as was presented about a week and a half ago, it looks like. Um, we'll look forward to Boris's speech this afternoon. Brian, I'm sure it'll be riveting. Uh, well, it's going to be dangerous, Mike. It's a dictatorship. It's very clear it's a dictatorship. I think we got more evidence in this news that we are now in a dictatorship that bonds, I think, are quite weak at the moment. So it's it's up to the wider population. It's up to us to break out of this. And I think there's a lot we can do, but it's a dictatorship. Uh, but of course, at the bottom of this dictatorship is this is this statistics, as I try to get that word out. Um, and uh, well, the statistics apparently are about to be fudged uh, even further because uh, as many people have noted over the weekend, uh, this recent release from Public Health England, the weekly coronavirus disease 2019 surveillance report uh, for week 40 um, has, uh, well, it has uh, some text in there, which is quite interesting because from now on, it seems uh, they say this will be the last COVID-19 surveillance report. As of 8th of October 2020, the information in this report will be published in a combined weekly flu and COVID-19 surveillance report on gov.uk. Uh, so David, um, welcome to the programme. It seems to me that uh, perhaps the COVID statistics alone um, aren't really justifying the action 
Um, and so they're having to mix it up with a whole bunch of other stuff to make sure that it's even harder to get a handle of what's actually going on uh, so that they can press ahead with their policy uh, without, uh, without any opportunity for any comeback. So it would seem the twindemic is here. Uh, we're entering winter flu season and we're now just conflating winter flu and COVID and reasons to be afraid. So we're, we're sure to find some, Mike. Uh, I'm sure we will. Um, now, I just want to highlight an article on the uh, UK Column website here. Here it is, um, COVID-19, the data exposing the deception. Um, and well, this was a fun, this is written by, uh, by Ian Davis once again, but it's based on work done by a guy called Mark Oakford, who is a UK Column supporter, um, who has absolutely got involved in this. Um, so he sent 1,392 freedom of information requests to local authorities, clinical commissioning groups, NHS trusts, police forces, education authorities, ministerial departments, uh, and others. Uh, and he has now gathered data so far on more than 1.6 million public sector workers across the UK. Uh, and based on this article is based on the results of those freedom of information requests. Um, so this provided uh, Ian the opportunity to compare what we're told about COVID-19 mortality and the actual reality in uh, around the country. Um, and uh, well, at the end of that report then uh, is the link to the raw data. So um, I'm going to say two things. First of all, fantastic uh, that Mark Oford decided off his own back to, to get on with this and, and make these freedom of information requests. There is a lot of information in that. We haven't managed to uh, get to the bottom of it all. But at the end of that article is a link to get the raw data. And I would just urge everybody that would like to get involved in sort of analysing that to do so. A lot of people feeling in a straitjacket might they see the stuff coming in some people are getting really quite frightened of what's happening. They're saying, what can we do? So he's giving a really first class example of what can be done when you get on the on the coattails of these people. Um, but also we're going to end uh, the news today with uh, another example of people that are actually taking the action. It's the action that conquers the fear. That's the key thing. Um, well, now, last week we were talking about, uh, or the last couple of weeks, we were talking about uh, Lieutenant Colonel Tobias Elwood, 77 Brigade, and his speech in Parliament. Just to remind you once again what he said, well, this, actually, this comment was in response to the uh, emails that he received following our coverage. Um, and uh, so he said uh, in responses that he never stated that vaccines would be mandatory. And if you remember uh, last week, I think it was Friday's programme, uh, I was saying, well, hold on a second. What does that actually mean? Because um, the government is not, I don't believe, going to pass any legislation which will make vaccines mandatory. But of course, there are many ways to make things mandatory. And we highlighted uh, the, the case of, of uh, a lady who has uh, had her hysterectomy operation cancelled by the NHS because she refused to have a swab test. Uh, just to remind you what this said, I'm writing following our telephone conversation. This was a, a letter from the NHS uh, I'm writing following our telephone conversation to confirm that your hysterectomy, which was listed for 6th of October 2020, has now been cancelled. During our telephone conversation, as well as in your pre-assessment, you made it very clear you do not wish to have the pre-operative COVID swab done, uh, although you're happy with the 14-day self-isolation. I'm afraid, therefore, that we cannot proceed with your surgical procedure on the planned date. I've removed your name from the waiting list as the current policy is unlikely to change in the foreseeable future. Uh, so in other words, the NHS uh, is effectively making certain things mandatory uh, in order to, or else they will withhold treatment. 
Um, well, it, I've got another example for you today, and thank you very much to the person who sent this uh, through to me, because uh, this is a letter from, the G from a GP about the annual flu vaccination. And it says, your doctor suggests you have a seasonal flu vaccination. Flu vaccination provides the best protection against an unpredictable virus that is, uh, uh, sorry, and it is uh, the best overall way to protect yourself and your family from flu. Um, but it goes on to say, if you do not wish to be vaccinated, please complete and return the slip below to enable us to update our records. Now, the person who sent me this said, well, this is the first time I've ever been asked uh, to complete a slip at the bottom of a letter and to uh, actually actively, uh, you know, actively inform the GP that I do not want a flu vaccine. Um, so this is another data collection exercise. But David, I wonder, uh, I wonder strongly whether this is similar to the previous uh, information there about the hysterectomy, that this is leading in the direction of uh, NHS support and NHS uh, uh, assessments being withheld from people uh, on the basis that they don't want to comply with certain obligations that the NHS has decided for our own benefit uh, to, that we are required to, to pursue? It's a very good question, Mike. Um, the NHS was founded on collectivist Stalinist principles back in the 40s. It was, we, we sold out the, the system that we had. We decided to stuff the, their mouths with gold when the doctors objected. Um, so they've been bought off. And now it's, it's an instrument of state policy. What's that state policy? What's generating it? We don't know that anymore, but the NHS will be and it will provide the necessary impetus to get people to comply. Um, well, um, sticking with the NHS for a second, um, of course, one of the arguments that we've been making pretty much since the beginning of this whole COVID-19 situation uh, was that many of the excess deaths, if not most of the excess deaths, have been caused not by COVID-19 itself, uh, but by the change in focus of the NHS away from everything other than COVID, uh, and that most of the deaths, therefore, were as a result of what we're calling them lockdown deaths, not only as a result of the lockdown, but, but as a result of the policies imposed upon the NHS from central government uh, and from NHS management. Um, well, it gets better. Uh, because we missed this story last week, but I think we should bring it to your attention now. This is uh, BBC, and the headline here is Patients' Access to Vital NHS Tests Delayed by Warehouse Failure. Now, we were prompted uh, to have a look at this because a number of doctors had been in touch over the weekend to say that they'd received uh, letters from the NHS uh, to say that they were to start withholding uh, what were being described as non-critical blood tests from everybody. Uh, so... Uh, this is, this is what's been going on. Now, what's, what's behind it is that Roche seems to be the only supplier of reagents for blood tests uh, and for the blood tests themselves. Uh, our understanding is the NHS only has one week's supply at the moment uh, and that there are no future supplies coming in. Uh, but the BBC article here says, uh, Swiss pharmaceutical firm Roche said problems with a move to a new warehouse had led to a very significant drop in processing capability. Uh, a spokesman said COVID-19 tests would be prioritised, but the backlog would, have, would affect tests including cancer and heart disease. Uh, one in NHS trust in the southwest has already advised GPs to stop all, all non-urgent blood tests. Uh, the Guardian also covered this. They said hospitals must ration 
blood tests after issues with reagent supplier. Uh, and there were many local media reports as well. This is from the Malvern Gazette saying all blood tests cancelled in Worcestershire due to Roche. Now, of course, uh, the inability to run diagnostic tests. I mean, di diagnostic tests are fundamental to, to everything that goes on in the NHS. The inability to run diagnostic tests is going to have a massive effect on uh, on people's on the, the opportunity to get, to get treatment through the NHS. And what is absolutely clear is that uh, what some people within the NHS are saying is that this is not a short-term thing. They're, they are preparing for this to be a long, uh, a long, toll, a long haul uh, effort. Now, uh, we shouldn't worry, though, because uh, Roche has issued a statement, as the BBC hinted at there, and this is it. Uh, the current issue with this batch of products in the UK has not and will not affect our commitment uh, to supply COVID-19 tests. So that's all right then. Um, and really, what we're seeing here is this what we have seen over the last six months is this huge reorientation uh, within the NHS away from any treatment other than COVID-19. Uh, this is another uh, situation which has arisen where we're seeing exactly the same type of thing. Roche doesn't seem to be in any massive hurry to solve the problem because it's meeting its obligations to supply COVID-19 tests. Uh, and David, uh, uh, we want to highlight uh, this article on lockdown skeptical skeptics the year the NHS failed the people of Britain. Yes, this is an article from a GP. He writes, I'm a UK GP and feel devastated at the catastrophe unfolding before us and the harm that governmental decisions, undebated, unchallenged and ignoring the evidence have done. The last straw was Matt Hancock's October the 9th tweet. And he then, uh, he then shows that. Matt Hancock says, this year when all nations have faced peril and adversity, the NHS was there for us, as it always is, and as it always must be. And uh, the, the doctor writing of this article continues, I will correct Matt Hancock's quote, this year the NHS failed us, it cannot be relied upon for urgent or chronic care, and this catastrophic failure of care will go on for years, he should resign. And I think that's absolutely spot on. We have to face this. We've been, we've been made as a people secondary to the NHS. People have been essentially sacrificed to save the NHS. It is meant to be the other way about. It is meant to be there to look after the vulnerable. That was how it was sold to us in the first place. It's meant to be there in time of need. Well, in time of need, they've pulled up the drawbridge. In time of need, they've taken resources away and they've, they've cut uh, contact with the public because the public are all viewed as potentially deadly infectious now. Uh, absolutely, but it doesn't end there because the NHS is delighted to tell us all that they have decided to become the world's first national health system to commit to becoming carbon net zero. Um, so this is quite incredible, Brian, in my opinion, because again, what we're seeing is uh, you know, focus taken away from the patient, from the, the person that needs the help into these uh, globalist areas, globalist policies that aren't going to help in any way for the person who needs treatment today for cancer, for example. Yes. And uh, Mike, over many years, we've pointed a finger at what's been happening in the NHS and one of the key organisations we warned and warned about acting as a Trojan horse inside the NHS was common purpose. This was bringing in the new leadership styles, it was bringing in the new policy 
it was bringing in a very draconian system of management and if people go onto the UK column website and uh, you look for an article called a million change agents or towards a million change agents you can see one of the detailed articles warning about this very dangerous political charity common purpose mm. simply taking over the inside of the NHS. Um, well if we just move on to good things and the good news is that we're getting an enormous increase in material from our viewers and listeners and it's obvious that people are taking up on the fact we're suggesting that people do need to write to their MPs they do need to demand answers they do need to challenge and it's clear people are doing this so let's have a look at this uh, letter here um, uh, I had to do this very quickly this morning so the graphics are not quite as good as I'd hoped but we can expand this so people can see so this is a letter that's uh, been sent back to an MP, Mark Johnson MP, who's then forwarded it on to his constituent uh, following questions they asked regarding face masks. Now in very small print at the top, uh, it actually tells us that this is uh, from Marie Turner, the head of ministerial correspondence and public inquiries in the Department of Health and Social Care. Very quickly, David, how do you like that as a title? It's it's brilliant, isn't it? <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, it does uh, illustrate that, that they're having to set up whole systems to cope with the questions being asked. Uh, it's no longer going in straight to the minister, nor there's someone there just to deal with the public interaction and hold the line. This is part of the, the intellectual battle that's going on between freedom and be, and the government. Uh, the government need their intellectual um, backup, their bodyguard of, uh, of experts to defend their position. And uh, that position is crumbling visibly before our eyes. Yep, thank you for that um, good analysis, as we'll see in a minute when we look at the, the um, cabinet office. But let's follow on through this. Now, remember that somebody's asked their MP for a question. They're getting a reply from a Marie Turner, head of ministerial correspondence and public inquiries within the Department of Health. Who, who is she? Well, we'll have a look at that. Let's look at the answers. Face coverings are not personal protective equipment and are not designed to provide protection in the same way as face masks. Um, the evidence on the effectiveness of face coverings in preventing the spread of COVID-19 in the community setting is limited. However, there is some research to suggest that a face covering could reduce the spread of infection if worn by an infected person by reducing the spread of droplets due to the wide variability in the evidence of what constitutes a face covering. Strong evidence of effectiveness in the community setting is difficult to obtain. I think we can see where this one is going and it goes on at the bottom of the page in June Public Health England conducted a rapid evidence review on the efficacy of different types of face coverings designed for use in community settings and the effectiveness of face coverings to reduce the spread of COVID-19 in the community. The review found evidence that mask wearing in the community may contribute to reducing the spread of COVID-19 and laboratory studies found that materials such as cotton and polyester may block droplets with a filtering efficiency similar to medical masks when folded in two or three layers. And what did we find at the end of the letter? Well, 
we found that Marie Turner hadn't even signed it herself. There's a PP and a squiggle. So we have an MP regurgitating information from a completely unknown person with unknown sources, but clearly saying really there is no case for masks. The evidence of effectiveness is limited. Strong evidence of effectiveness in the community setting is difficult to obtain. Mask wearing in the community may contribute to reducing COVID. Uh, cotton and polyester may block droplets. So what we can see here, and I'll come back to you again, David, is the MPs are simply now just muppets. They are puppets, spokespersons for policy, which is coming out of the Cabinet Office uh, and the Cabinet Office alone, I'm going to suggest, because it's clear that the Cabinet Office is controlling these other heads of departments. So MPs are not functioning. This is this is bizarre. This is the, the, the job of the MP is to represent his constituents. That that question from a constituent got a response which showed that the mask wearing policy has no has no scientific basis. I mean the, the, the response didn't go into risks of wearing masks, so it was only half a response. But even the half he got showed that there was no scientific basis for the policy. But people are being fined for this. People are being threatened in shops. People are having having people threatened to punch them in the face because they're so afraid of COVID. That's what the government policy has done. Surely the, the surely the politician would have hit the roof. Surely the MP, if he was doing his job, would have gone would have would have gone for the official and said this is in no way acceptable. Did did he? Did he do any of those things, Brian? Uh, I believe not, but I, I very much hope that the constituents, the constituent concerned will follow through on this and ask those questions of their MP. But uh, I'm going to give another example of this sort of behaviour by the MPs. But what these letters do is allow us to put the spotlight on the MPs and what their failings are. We can show the evidence. And this is very important. Now, let's just jump back to Marie Turner. Um, I can't show you a picture because, of course, uh, she's anonymous for whatever reason. But this is her LinkedIn page. And she's got a lot to say about herself. I'll just give you a little bit. Of it. I have experience of dealing with a variety of vulnerable people, helping them through the hardest times in their lives, but also have supported people to make changes that have dramatically improved their lives. These experiences have had a significant impact on me by developing my emotional intelligence. Have you ever heard that phrase, Mike? Oh, well, she's common purpose then. Uh, this is a common purpose reframed person. Developing my emotional intelligence and my understanding of what motivates individuals. Well, truth motivates a lot of people, but clearly she's not about that. She's about policy. Um, she's a demanding, she's demanding as a leader and that I expect my team to give their best, but I support them in any way I can to ensure this is a realistic aspiration. I value communications. She goes on and on about her leadership, which I think is another clue. This is a heavily, heavily reframed person. And look at this one. My goal is to be the best I can be and inspire and motivate those around me to do the same. I crave success and thrive with new challenges. Well, if she craves success, she's going to do anything, anywhere 
to ensure that her ego is met and she can get through the system well where does she come from this is her background as she declares so she's worked in the department for work and pensions helping vulnerable people apparently well Good. that's become an interesting concept uh, looking at the way dwp works then she was in defra as a senior team manager now we know that the behavioral applied behavioral psychology was first launched by the british government on uh, defra and pretty much around the time scales she was there and around the time scale that she was there uh, we, we've got two things happening we've got the launch of the applied behavioral psychology and we've also got uh, um, uh, other major changes in that department sorry that's just popped out of my head but defra was the focus of 34 million pounds worth of government applied behavioral psychology then she moves up to head of ministerial correspondence unit and his business business has now become into uh, uk aid and dfid and here we are with uh, head of ministerial correspondence and public inquiries um, so it's very interesting and i'll switch screen here because we were also alerted to this advert uh, which is for a deputy head of ministerial correspondence so now we're really seeing what these posts are about a mere 40 grand for doing it uh, type of role knowledge and information management operational delivery uh, policy other uh, well it's based in Whitehall London and it says that the cabinet office supports the prime minister and ensures the smooth running of government from developing policy to modernizing public services we welcome talented people from all backgrounds with the skills and commitment to build a career in the civil service and well done the person who wrote this job advert because they give us some very interesting things this is the first one uh, David I had no idea that the cabinet office was now employing 7,000 people that's really a whole civil service on its own wow wow i had no idea it was as big as that <laughs> you, well I, that explains a lot you you would think they'd be able to answer a few questions then if there's seven thousand people seven thousand people and let's look at what they say the cabinet office does in this advert the cabinet office purpose is this to maintain the integrity of the union coordinate the security of the realm and sustain a flourishing democracy and i'm going to come straight back to you what do you make of that we're now uh, maintaining the integrity of the union we're not in a nation state uh, taking normal defense precautions we're maintaining the integrity of the union yeah that sounds like it's inward focused it's not looking at external threats it's looking at internal threats um and uh yeah it, it, it's also rather suggesting that that we're a union of four countries and we're not actually one which is uh, an interesting point to yield to those who would separate the countries um, i thought the mod was responsible for coordinating the security of the realm well i would have thought so too alongside the intelligence services but no that's within the cabinet office and presumably they've got some of those seven thousand unknown employees who are the key people answering and forming answering letters forming policy but the second point is this to support the design and implementation of HM government's policies and the prime minister's priorities and this is now key because here we are now starting to look at where these dangerous policies I've used the word yet again and I'm going to keep using it 
these policies are coming from that we're talking about around COVID. And finally, to ensure the delivery of the finest public services by attracting and developing the best public servants and improving the efficiency of government. So this is all navel gazing stuff. And let's bring in the key stuff because driven into the heart of this um, this government of occupation, we've got applied behavioural psychology, which I'm going to call brainwashing. Uh, we've got the behavioural insights team, which we've warned and warned about, and they're also heavily involved in the SPY B unit of the government scientific SAGE team for COVID. Uh, we've alerted the public to the Mindspace document. If you haven't read it, you need to. You can find it by just doing a search for mindspace.pdf. And we've also warned about the Collaboration Hub, uh, which is there to accelerate policy uh, through government to the point it's enacted on the streets. So this is, this is a very, very sinister mix of a dictatorship and before we forget about him, let's bring in Cummings, who's been moved close to this, because we still don't know what this man is doing, although apparently single-handedly he's carrying out a defence review. And uh, if uh, you go on through this, this is more detail about what the business unit uh, is about, the parliamentary correspondence team. It's all about democracy and the rights of citizens, but actually the organisation itself blocks citizens from getting answers to their questions. So this is a, a very, very, uh, um, what, what's the word? It's a smokescreen to make sure we can't get answers to questions. And if you're going to apply for the job, they're interested in your behaviours. And I found this very interesting because they want you to be able to see the big picture and they want to be able they want you to be able to influence. So when Marie wrote her letter, was she writing an honest letter back in answer or was she looking to help the government put its big picture policy in place and influence people? And so I just wanted to tag on there, uh, Mike, what big picture um, influencing whom and to what purpose? I think that's key. And I'll put this up just very quickly. Um, the the um, selection is going to use success profiles. I'll come on to them in a minute. It's all about your behaviours. So this is all to do with psychological manipulation. But I did notice this as well, that it's open if you're in the European economic area. Um, so clearly we're still in the European Union and still going strong. Well, the European economic area is different, but, but, uh, and we will remain part of that even after we've left the European Union. And you can work out uh, how that works in your leisure time. In, <laughs> indeed, indeed. And if you don't know what success profiles are, here's the government's explanation in colours. So this is obviously meant for children. Um, but essentially we've got uh, experience, ability, um, technical, but you notice the green behaviours there. And what this thing says, sorry if I can call it in, the success framework moves recruitment away from using a purely competency-based system of assessment. So we don't want people that know their job and are competent. No, they have to be the right kind of people they have with to be the, the right the... kind of mindset and the right kind of behaviours. It's amazing. You've got it. So we're not interested in how competent you are, we're only interested in whether you will collaborate with the government's big picture and you will shape other people's views. Mm -hmm. And 
to prove what is going on here uh, by sheer coincidence somebody sent me another example uh, this is joe churchill mp parliamentary under secretary of state for uh, prevention public health and primary care she's replying to elliot colburn mp uh, she says this dear elliot thank you for your recent correspondence owing to the unprecedented situation in which we find ourselves i'm currently unable to respond to every individual letter personally this is not what i wish however in order to prevent further delay to you i have asked an official to reply on my behalf and this is enclosed mm. so we get a warm feeling sorry we'll highlight that bit well who's the official well in this case <laughs> it is actually marie turner herself so there's the real signature but we're going to put that stamp that the MPs have simply become the mouthpieces for the cabinet. And I'm not suggesting people should stop writing letters. You should write more letters to draw this out and challenge those MPs. Uh, final thoughts on that, David? Ending summary of where we are and the nature of the government. I thought it was absolutely first class. There are, there, we're no longer interested in incompetence. Competence just gets in the way because you have opinions and, and, and you might be, you know, fixed in your view that you have to do the thing correctly. No, no. It, Her Majesty's government, compliance, not competence. That's, that's, that's where we're at. I thought that was fantastic. Thank you for that. Well, thank you for that. So uh, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. There are options to help us out there and uh, you're assistance much needed and much appreciated. Uh, David, uh, just quickly, a couple of new videos from Northern Exposure. Yes, uh, two new videos. Uh, the third in the series of interviews uh, with Samantha Baldwin. Uh, this is going to be a five interview series, I believe. Uh, it's very vital information. It shows how the family courts work, how the legal system is working, and the horrendous position, the honest uh, and, and, and good and loving parents are placed in in this country um, where essentially they have the choice of either suffering persecution or joining the courts in targeting and betraying their own children. It's a, a horrendous position and uh, Samantha Baldwin is, is speaking out extremely bravely about it. Uh, and, and another brave woman, another third in the series interview uh, was uh, with uh, Kate Shemarani. Uh, now this covered um, her legal fight which has gone awfully well because it transpires the government didn't have a case um, and also ongoing uh, issues with uh, covering what she is doing to uh, to fight against various lies coming out of out of officialdom to put a different uh, perspective forward and uh, we also discussed what it's like being a dissident in uh, 21st century britain Okay, and uh, just briefly moving away from the UK column for a second, there's AV 11.1 coming up in the uh, in a couple of weeks' time, Sunday the 1st of November from 9am to 10pm, uh, and uh, uh, well, we will be helping facilitate that. You'll be speaking at it. Uh, Patrick Henningsen will be speaking, Alex Thompson, uh, Graham Downing, uh, Indeed. A, a number of others. A number of others, and uh, the details of those speaking slots will come out from um, Ian Crane at Alternative View very shortly, so... Uh, we'll get that out as soon as we can. Also draw people's attention, Sunday morning we released this dispatches in interview, um, which I did with a gentleman called Jason Barnett. It's on the subject of bullying and violence and suicide amongst school children. But what it shows is that 
all of the 650 MPs um, ran for cover when they were provided evidence as to what was really going on. And I'm going to say that what Jason's talking about is the tip of an iceberg. If you're a parent and you've got a child at school, you need to watch this interview and we're going to be following up on it in a number of different directions. I think we're up to 13,000 views, was it, Michael? Yeah, somewhere, so, yeah, yeah. Somewhere around there. So we've already had an incredible response and I've had some very, very fascinating emails but if you haven't seen it, please watch it and please share. And you can find that on the front page of the UK Column website. Now, uh, David, the Royal Family has been tweeting. Yes, the Royal Family does tweet now. Um, remember when we used to have a constitution and we used to have a monarch? We don't so much have that. We've got a Twitter account now. It's, it's almost the same thing. Uh, and this is, uh, well, mostly about uh, Prince Charles and what he's saying. And it's done a little film here with some voiceover work, is very interesting. So the, the, the tweet says, we've forgotten sometimes that we're part of nature uh, and what we do to the world around us, we're doing totally to ourselves. Prince Charles has launched a new series of short films about potential solutions to the climate crisis. So he's backing the climate crisis narrative. And this one says, we've forgotten sometimes that we're part of nature. That sounds a little bit new age, a little bit Gaia, but it goes on from there. He then says, and it's his narrative, there is life after apparent death from the current conventional approach. So this is this is this is um, a pseudo-religious reference where death is being equated to doing things as we have in life, um, salvation, redemption is being. Um, pointed to in the direction of green technology and uh, climate change controls on liberty. This is a very strange pseudo-religion that's been pushed by the man who may be king. And um, it gets worse. Um, he continues here, we've got to remember that the natural world is what sustains us. Now, there was a point when um, the heir to the throne would have said, that, that the Lord God Almighty sustains us and this country. That's no longer there. I would suggest to you that what we're seeing is uh, Charles conf confirming he's no longer Christian, that the, the New Age religion he has is probably closer to Wicca uh, or some other um, uh, paganism, but it's not Christianity. And I, I was very struck by the the religious references he had in here in the context of climate policy. I find this very uh, concerning indeed. Um, but uh, of course, uh, what he's talking about here is is the idea that we've got to go for a, a new green economy. And that's absolutely at the heart of the policy that's being pushed under the uh, umbrella of COVID-19. Uh, and of course, one of the other problems uh, or one of the problems that's arising from that policy is that people's incomes are being absolutely devastated at the moment. Uh, and here we have, uh, we have an article from the Wall Street Journal, David. Uh, coronavirus has thrown around 100 million people into extreme uh, poverty, uh, World Bank estimates. Yes, so they're talking about decades of progress going into reverse. Now, the decades of progress is very significant because the progress has been enormous. And they said the coronavirus pandemic uh, it's thrown between 88 and 114 million into extreme poverty. Um, now, if you look at the extreme poverty trend over time, um, the, the improvement is breathtaking. 
that this is the greatest reduction in poverty in the history of mankind. And it kicked off when the wall came down, when communism fell and countries like China and India stopped pursuing policies that were actively harmful to their people. And some of the controls came off and some more trade happened. Look at what happened to poverty worldwide from 37.1% down to 9.6%, right? And that was in what, 25 years. That's astonishing. Uh, but and it's, it's also, it, it is astonishing, David, but it's also problematic because of course, uh, people that are not in poverty um, are consuming lots of things. They're, are, they're using lots of fossil fuels. They're pushing carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. This is the narrative that we're being told. And in order to reach carbon net zero, we've got to have less people doing that kind of thing. And therefore, we, what we really need is either to not have those people in the first place, or at the very least, uh, reduce their standard of living so they can't afford uh, to, uh, to have this kind of impact on the natural world. This is it. This, the, the, the concept is profoundly anti-human. Uh, from, from the Georgia Guidestones guide on down, we know that the, the view is that, that, that humanity is essentially a plague on Gaia. This is the world view. Um, it, it views human beings with disgust. It is, it is deeply troubling that this is gaining so much traction in the very highest areas of our society and of world governments. And that takes us to the World Bank. Now, the World Bank president here, um, uh, David Malpass, is, is, is recognizing there's a problem here. Um, he said the pandemic and global recession may cause over 1.4% of the world's population to fall into extreme poverty. So that's a huge amount of misery he's, he's predicting there. But he then goes on, in order to reverse this serious setback to development progress and poverty reductions, countries will need to prepare for a different economy post-COVID by allowing capital, labour, skills and innovation to move into new businesses and sectors, World Bank supports. So he's saying that, that we've had this huge, huge stride forward in 25 years, right? We've gone from nearly 40% poverty to less than 10% poverty. The, the biggest improvement in the history of mankind so we can't go back to that. No, we have to do something different. It's bizarre, but it's okay, Mike, because you can trust this man, because do you know what his job was before he got uh, his post at the World Bank? Tell me. He was the chief economist at Bear Stearns for the six years before it collapsed. So, you know, he's, he's, got, he's got expertise. Uh, good stuff. Now, one of the things that struck me about what he said there, about that quote, uh, was that it sounds very similar to the type of rhetoric we've had out, out of Rishi Sunak in the last few weeks about this whole notion of what is a viable job and people having to retrain into viable jobs. Uh, and so the question then becomes, where is the policy coming from? If Rishi Sunak is expressing that to us uh, because he's the, the main uh, contact between us and policy uh, for in, on economic matters, then where is his policy coming from? It's a very good question. And, and the, the, the strange thing about this is, the, the argument that people have to retrain when their jobs are no viable, no longer viable, is true, right? But it's 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 true in the context that when governments are forcing people to to continue in policies that are no longer needed by the market, by the free market, then they should be stopping that and moving on to areas where they're more needed. Uh, uh, Rishi is not talking about that. He's talking about government setting the agenda. Um, restricting what people do and deciding in a centralized way um, what everyone's going to be do doing and, and who the winners and who the losers are going to be. 
he's actually um, promoting the very opposite of the, the of, of of jobs moving to where the demand is. He's talking about centralized economy. He's talking about centralized control, and we know that it doesn't work. Um, but that centralized control, perhaps uh, we can put a label on it, and that might be great reset. That is the phrase. Yes, yes, great reset. The great reset is coming. Uh, and Sky News Australia uh, has been talking about that. Oh, if only we had Sky News like this in Britain, it would be such a joy. Sky News Australia is is a beautiful thing to behold. Uh, this is this is Rowan Dean, um, and he said that uh, the World Economic Forum in Davos uh, has morphed from a jet setter climate gab fest into a sinister anti-democratic enterprise designed to destroy your job, steal your prosperity, and rob your kids of a future. It's a hardcore leftist eco-horror show replete with quasi-fascism. That's very accurate. Uh, well, it is. Uh, and well, let's get another example of what appears to be uh, centralised policy, because, of course, uh, Boris Johnson very keen to promote the notion of build back better. Uh, this is uh, his brand. Or is it his brand? Uh, because apparently Joe Biden is also building back better. And David, the first question is, uh, yeah, uh, it is it is amusing. The question is, David, um, how can a Democrat who's supposed to be liberal in the United States and a Tory who's supposed to be conservative in the UK be promoting the same policy? It does seem strange, um, and it, but it's not just them. Uh, we've got uh, Canada has built back better. Um, we've got... Um, Prime Minister Imran Khan of Pakistan is going to build back better. Everyone's going to build back better. It, it, seems, it seems like this has been decided somewhere that we can't see and disseminated in all of these politicians all across the globe of apparently different political hue and apparently ideologically opposed are all singing from exactly the same hymn sheet. It would be nice to know who's writing the hymn sheet. Well, maybe we can give a clue because here is uh, the British Bring Back Better campaign. This is a campaign for a coronavirus recovery plan that builds back better. Uh, they say that they are drawing on existing funding from the European Climate Foundation and Oak Foundation. We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, they've got partnerships with donors uh, and, and so on. But anyway, this is what they're saying. Uh, it's time for a new deal. And of course, they're promoting the Green New Deal. Uh, let's have a look about us. Uh, we believe working together will give us the best chance of succeeding uh, in, at this moment. Uh, this is a movement made up of organizations and groups from many different places where teachers, healthcare workers, students and organizations are fighting for change. And they've got a, uh, a steering group and the steering group begins with the Green New Deal UK. It's got organizations like Greenpeace. Uh, it's got uh, Quakers in Britain. It's got 350.org. Uh, Friends of the Earth, the New Economics Foundation, uh, the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants, uh, and uh, the UK School Climate Network. Uh, but this is a bit problematic because if we take uh, if we take these two organisations that uh, that it's uh, uh, get, getting funding from the European Climate Foundation and the Oak Foundation, well, the Oak Foundation absolutely has direct links with uh, the Open Society Foundations uh, because they are considered to be. Uh, a partner, a donor partner 
Uh, but if we look at the uh, European Climate Foundation, uh, well, here's their uh, Executive Director for Strategic Partnerships, Partnerships Ida Kenny LeDuc. Uh, and uh, well, Ida served, according to her own CV, as a Director of Philanthropic philanthropic partnerships at Open Society Foundations for five years, working closely with the chairman, George Soros, uh, and with OSF's president. She managed relationships with key stakeholders and co-funding partners and helped a wide range of initiatives, grantees, and new enterprises develop sustainable funding uh, strategy and governance plans. And the thing is that if you look carefully at who is behind the Build Back Better campaign in this country, all the partner organizations, almost, I mean, I mean, the number of them that have direct links to the Open Society Foundations and George Soros, it's staggering, David. And so if you're asking who's driving this, I think we can you, see quite clearly. You've, you've just proved that this has been a remarkable program. You've just proved that George Soros is writing Boris Johnson's scripts, hymn sheets. Indirectly, yes, well, what, absolutely. <laughs> if I'm allowed to say that. Well, <laughs> and well, well that 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 makes that makes a lot more sense when you when you look at it that way. Because he's certainly not conservative. No, just wanted to remind people, of course, that a few years back you saw Gordon Brown sharing um, uh, speech um, content with Obama, and the key phrase was common purpose our common purpose but there was about another five things i'll try and get that and bring it up on the the uh, news again so that we can we can compare but you've identified if it quacks like the duck uh it is a duck well basically. indeed now let's move on to uh, the bank of england uh, and well they're very interested in negative interest rates david and i have been highlighting this for quite some time now uh, but they've decided to write to all the commercial banks, all the high street banks, uh, to ask them if they're ready, or is it to ask them if they're ready? It's not, well, they'd say it's not because they're intending to implement it, but let's have a look and see what, they, what they're saying. They're saying for a negative bank rate to be effective as a policy tool, the financial sector as the key transmission mechanism of monetary policy would need to be operationally ready to implement it in a way that does not adversely affect the safety and soundness of firms. So they're obviously expressing some concern that if they were just to unilaterally move to uh, negative interest rates without uh, some kind of consultation with the industry, uh, that banks might go out of business. Uh, they said in their letter, as part of this work, we're requesting specific information about your firm's current readiness to deal with a zero bank rate, a negative bank rate, or a tiered system of reserves remuneration, uh, and the steps that you would need to take to prepare for the implementation of these. Uh, but don't worry, David, uh, because this engagement is not asking firms to begin taking steps to ensure that they're operationally ready to implement a negative bank rate. Uh, not yet anyway. It's just a consultation to make sure or to find out uh, how close they might be to being in a position to implement it. Uh, but it's pretty clear what the direction of travel is. Yes, yes. The direction of travel is to for the consumer to at the very least zero interest rates. I mean, an actual practical zero. Uh, under those circumstances, what will house prices do? They'll go to the moon, right? Asset prices will go stratospheric. So, um, you know, then everyone will feel temporarily, and I do mean temporarily, wealthy. But of course, it won't be real. It will just be yet more distortions of the economy and a, and a, and a yet bigger bubble. We thought that 20... 
uh, the, 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 the 2008 um, was, was an enormous bubble. Um, we've perhaps not seen anything yet, Mike. Uh, well, abs that's uh, uh, correct indeed, but it gets better uh, because uh, central, well, uh, you've been arguing for some time uh, that you don't see how national currencies can actually survive uh, what's coming here uh, following a negative interest rate policy. Uh, but uh, it gets better because uh, the Bank of England uh, two days ago uh, released uh, some information to tell us that a group of seven central banks together with the Bank for International Settlements has published a report identifying the foundational principles necessary for any publicly available central bank digital currencies to help central banks meet their public policy objectives. Now, the question is, what is a central bank digital currency? Well, they're, they go on to explain, the Bank for International Settlements explains this slightly. They're saying uh, that CDBC, uh, CBDCs uh, is potentially a new form of digital central bank money. So there isn't very much central bank money available, which is digital at the moment. It's uh, at least not for public use. Uh, it's uh, mostly in the form of cash. Uh, but they are very concerned uh, that uh, uh, cash is uh, disappearing. Cash is rapidly disappearing from uh, central bank jurisdictions, they say. But they want to combine this new digital money with the uses of a distributed ledger technology. So in other words, a blockchain technology type of thing. So, David, we are heading to the point very quickly uh, where the central banks appear to be determined to build uh, some new infrastructure uh, in order to prepare for, well, the current infrastructure not being there anymore. Now, you've just been talking about a massive bubble, the likes of which we've never seen before. Um, um, we've been talking about the effects of uh, the policies that we're witnessing at the moment, policies that we have never seen before in the history of humankind. Uh, and you've been saying in the, in the last number of weeks that this is likely to lead to the loss of uh, national currencies. Maybe we don't need to worry. The, 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 key, the key thing to remember is the phrase crack up boom, because what talk, they're talking about putting in negative interest rates. And if you take real inflation, we've probably already got negative interest rates. That means that there's a cost, there's a real cost to holding money. To hold money, it, it's, it's dissolving as you hold it. It's losing value as you hold it. When this becomes recognized by the public, then they will buy things, anything, right? Works of art, right? Old silver teapots, gold, houses, anything, because you don't want to hold money. So when that happens, there's a huge boom. It's called a crack-up boom, and that comes just before the end. And I think that's pretty much where we're at. But let's move on. Uh, what is the cure for COVID? Ah, right. Yes. Now, uh, is it, it, the, the, cure is, the cure is worse than the, the, than the disease is the problem. So this is yet another medic writing, another person who has lost faith in the government prescription. Right. So this is Professor Angus Dalgleish. And he's a cancer specialist, and he's lost two close colleagues to suicide in two weeks. One killed himself as a result of profound despair at the loneliness created by COVID. So this is this is part of a long article and a very good article in the Daily Mail that goes through a cons in considerable detail the evidence for whether or not the government policy is actually coherent and concludes that it is not. Um, 
I've got a couple of extracts here. He writes, on Monday, I joined a Zoom meeting with a colleague who told me that another participant, a highly respected research assistant, would not be joining us. Tragically, he'd committed suicide. It subsequently emerged that he'd hanged himself in his bed set. Lockdown and COVID restrictions had left him feeling isolated and broken by the loss of normal human interaction. Now, later on in the article, he says, I view the official COVID strategy with mounting alarm as our nation stares into the abyss of unprecedented recession and social dislocation. The supposed cure is indeed turning out to be far worse than the disease. My concern about the present policy led me to become one of the founding signatories of the Great Barrington Declaration. So this is a, this is a, a, a thoughtful man who has competence but also can see the real bigger picture. He can see what's happening to his fellow man. He can see that the policies are not coherent, not rational, but are themselves the vehicle of destroying our society. And he's raising a voice against it and good on him for doing so. Um, and good on him for being part of the Great Barrington Declaration. Now, we're not going to get a chance to, to cover this uh, because we're about to run out of time. But I'll just mention at this point that the Great Barrington Declaration is currently absolutely censored uh, from Google. If you search for Great Barrington Declaration, it will not take you to their website. Instead, you will get some uh, media uh, reports which are slagging it off. Um, and you'll get, uh, well, you might see uh, an online discussion forum, a Google discussion forum, where people are asking, why has Google done this? Um, but it's quite striking that, uh, that that website and the, the yeah. campaign has been simply removed from Google search results. Uh, and lots and lots of people have noticed. Which is a very good thing. Well, it is a good, it's a good thing that people have noticed. It's yeah. not such a good thing that, uh, that it happened in the first place. Now, uh, David, uh, more protests over the weekend? Yes, uh, this is a few shots from uh, Cardiff. Uh, we see there Piers Corbyn uh, making a speech. And um, uh, we also see uh, our gentleman, thank you very much for this, uh, with a sign saying, watch UK column for real news. So um, uh, the word is getting out and people are protesting and people are meeting one another and sharing ideas and are not being afraid. Uh, also in Edinburgh at the weekend, um, we have... Um, uh, some signs here, vaccines can cause injury and death, which is true. So people are telling the truth. And I particularly like this this young lady here with the banner that says, purge the sturge. Um, <laughs> the, the adherence of Nicola Sturgeon to the COVID um, orthodoxy is starting to tell on her popularity. Uh, she's obviously shut down all of the entertainment and, and hospitality industry in central Scotland and has been a protest against that too. Here we see the bartenders of Edinburgh uh, dumping all of the rice that they can no longer use outside the Scottish Parliament. Similar protests happened in Glasgow as well. And we're also seeing uh, bits, of, um, prop, uh, bits of graffiti cropping up across central Scotland. Here's a boarded up shop and the graffiti, graffiti is SSNP, SS uh, written in the Nazi style. So we're seeing that, the, that, that even the graffiti artists are realizing that there is something profoundly totalitarian and nasty and Nazi-like about the policies that are, that are being implemented. And another one here from a motorway bridge in Glasgow. Um, again, Sturgeon with two S's, SS, Sturgeon lied. I'd have to say to whichever graffiti artist put that on there, next time you'll have to be more specific because that's that's quite a broad subject and we're not quite sure exactly which lie you're referring to. 
Yeah, yeah, David, thank you for that. And I'll just add, and there are journalists who are clearly seeing things and trying to uh, get the message out. This is something I've had for a while, but uh, not, not brought forward. It's uh, Washington Times, uh, Cheryl Chumley, headline, Coronavirus and the Smell of Saul Alinsky. And uh, what does it say here? Communist-minded community organiser Saul Alinsky in his prologue for Rules to Radicals explained that the most effective activists were those who worked within the established system, not against it, so as to stir up the revolutionary pots of change through fear. So that's got all the words in it. And uh, he said any revolutionary change must be preceded by a passive, affirmative, non-challenging attitude towards change amongst the mass of our people. They must feel so frustrated, so defeated, so lost, so futureless in the prevailing system that they're willing to let go of the past and chance the future. And um, uh, this is co coronavirus chaos exemplified. That's the comment by the journalist. And of course, it is fact that Saul Alinsky policy has been used both within Labour Party uh, policy and Conservative Party policy uh, that was uh, uh, leaked uh, publicly some time ago. So we shouldn't be surprised that we're actually seeing this uh, chaotic background unfold around co coronavirus. Um, well, we just do you want to finish with this email, Brian? Well, I think it'd be a nice place to finish, Mike, because it's been a very, very heavy news. A lot of people say, my goodness, what do we do? There's so much um, nasty stuff happening. Well, it's the action that conquers the fear. And uh, anybody and everybody can take action. So have a look at this little text that was sent to me a couple of days ago. Good day. It's little Susie from Totnes Group here again. Please, please, will you give us a mention? I'm trying to encourage the world over to write letters to MPs and other officials and put out posters giving them something new to feel that's not fear. Posters are powerful, and in this climate of censors, a uh, poster on a telegraph pole is seen by those not looking at alternatives. It's a way to get the info to them, and we can put up posters with government website details they can't argue that it's a conspiracy. Every Saturday, this will be happening until the nonsense stops. From about 12 o'clock onwards, we'll be in the high street around the market, although not too much as we get in the trader's way. Up and down the high street, um, you will find someone with a clipboard and enthusiasm to help you. We will love to encourage all around the country world to do the same. If anyone would like to do so, needs, wants support, please get in touch, send me a message on my website, actionspeaks.info. Massive love and gratitude to you all. And I'm going to say there are many, many people like little Susie across the country doing their bit to challenge the monster. What we need is their individual efforts to be reinforced by tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, and particularly getting those letters in, which holds our uh, elected MPs feet to the fire. It's only by taking the action. But I thought, uh, David, it's just wonderful to see that individual people are now standing up to be counted. They don't have to arrange a big demonstration. They can be doing little things at a local level. Yes, there are many ways to resist. In Scotland, having a wee drama is now a form of resistance. Like smiling at someone and they can see your face is a form of resistance. Anything normal, anything loving, anything 
that doesn't have fear as a form of resistance. Yeah, excellent. Well, that's it for today. We will be back at the same time on Wednesday. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much to everybody donating uh, to the column and sponsoring. And thank you very much for all those overseas viewers who are now tuning into the UK column. It's great to see you. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.